I'm supposed to preach again, so <clears throat> here we are. If you would, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew 6. The best part, or the funny part, is that next Sunday is the celebration and Mark Kennedy is going to be preaching, so um, this will be one and done for Dan. So we're going to be back in the Lord's, or the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, Lord, as we, as we turn our attention to your word, collectively, Lord, there's just such a mystery to this where your spirit's inside of me, your spirit's in your people. We have the inspired word that was inspired by your spirit. And apart from him, nothing's going to happen here. Our dependency on you, Lord God, to illumine our minds to the truth, to enable me to not mess up the text. Father, for it to go through not just our thinking, but deep into our hearts and a change, a change our living. Father, we are, we are a people who are totally dependent upon you to make this work. And so it only makes the most sense to ask of you, Lord God, to please bless our time in the study. Move our hearts by the truth. Father, help us to have a greater and greater passion for your glory. To be hungry for it, Lord. And I pray and ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are in the Lord's Prayer. Um, as you guys probably remember, if you're visiting today or haven't missed some of these other ones, um, we're covering the Lord's Prayer, walking through this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. I know it's called the Lord's Prayer, quote-unquote, but I would prefer to call it the Disciples' Prayer because this isn't a prayer that Jesus prays. This is a prayer Jesus gives to the disciples to pray. Why do I say that? I've said that numerous times. The reason I say that is because in this prayer, there's an asking of forgiveness. Jesus doesn't ask for forgiveness. Jesus gives forgiveness. And so this is not the Lord's Prayer. If you want the Lord's Prayer, go to John chapter 17, and you'll read the Lord's Prayer, the prayer of Jesus Christ to the Father. In this one, we see the disciples' prayer. And guys, as we've been covering this, I want to remind you afresh that this is not about a repetitive little practice prayer that we say with our minds disengaged. Rather, the question is, the big question I have that I hope you have is, okay, Lord, what is meant by this and what is your intention in giving this to your people? Why is Jesus giving this? Because I don't know about you, but the the conviction, the pressure I've had in my mind, in my heart as a believer, as of late, is, Lord, I want to know what you want my prayer life to be like. I know what Dan's prayer life is like. I know what it has been like. But now I want to ask this question fervently and truthfully, ask the Lord, what, what tenets, what pieces should be a part of the life of the prayer of your disciple? What should I pray? 
Now, the Scripture tells us to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. As I read through the Bible, I see that people pray for anything and everything. I don't think the Lord hears our prayer and then says, that's a dumb prayer. I think He hears our prayer, and through Christ, He hears the prayers of His people, for sure. But guys, Jesus Christ Himself gave these tenants, gave these pillars for us to build our prayer life on. And what struck me so hard as of late is that the first half of this prayer has nothing to do with what I want, necessarily. Or what naturally comes to my mind, what I would ask of him. There's nothing here in the first few tenets of this prayer about my health, about the health of somebody else, about my money, about ease of living, none of of that is in the text. What's in the text is the glory of God, which I believe what Christ is declaring, what he's making straight to his disciples is, your first priority, your number one priority, is the glory of God. Not you. You don't live for you. You You don't answer. The fear of man is not driving your decision making. It's God. And so he begins by saying, our Father in heaven, this is the title or the introduction to this prayer, that he is, number one, our Father, intimacy, number two, our Father who's in heaven, reverence. So I have a level of intimacy with the living God, I know him, the scripture says with great clarity, I've been adopted by him, I can call him Father. At the same time, this is the sovereign of the universe who declares the end from the beginning. And those aren't at odds with each other. Unfortunately, sometimes folks will make it feel like that. Like either PCBC is a church where we're reverent, or it's a church where we are very close to God, and almost as if familiarity means flippancy with Him. And the scripture makes very clear, they aren't at odds with each other. These are in sync with one another. Read the Old Testament in particular, but New Testament as well. Anybody who gets more intimate with the Lord, a greater knowledge of Him, and a closer relationship to Him has greater reverence for Him. It doesn't become more flippant and more familiar. It becomes more reverent the more familiar you are with Him. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And he says, woe is me, I'm a dead man. He didn't say, well, now that he and I are buddies... No, his response was deeper reverence. And so it begins with, Our Father in heaven. There is no reason, and there is every reason, to call him Father. You've been adopted. If you are a son of the living God, you are, have been adopted by Almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We touched on this name simply meaning the person himself. The name is there as a representative of God, not just his name. So that way in my language, I'd be careful with how I say his name. No, it's saying he himself is to be hallowed. Hallowed very simply means treated as holy, treated as other, treated as different, God is saying, the first priority in your prayer life, God, you are treated different than everything else. I I want you on the tops. 
Everything else comes secondary. Marriage comes secondary. Children come secondary. My own happiness comes secondary. Father, you being hallowed, number one in my life, number two in the life of those around me, number three, as I look over this world, I want to see your name as great in the minds of the people. When you talk to certain missionaries or you read missionary biographies in the past and you read about these men, you say, what kind of fires in their heart that would make them go to a place and potentially be slaughtered? Was it because that they wanted the prestige? That's going to burn off really fast. No, they are hungry for the glory of God. They count their life as cheap, and they are ready to give and have it be spent for Him. Hungry for the glory of God. That you have your greatest joy when you see Him treated as holy. And some of your deepest pain is when you see him regarded as nothing. Merely a swear word. Slandered, put down. Whether his people are being put down or he himself is being put down. That God is a, as some have said, a monster. Many different terms have been used of him. He's slandered. As Spurgeon said, the reason the world attacks his church is because they can't reach him. If they could, they'd crucify him again. And so these prayers, the, the pieces to this prayer, you guys, is not just a simple repetitive thing. These are tenets that build up our prayer life. And so the conviction on Dan's heart afresh, and I, I challenge you with it as well, is how much of your prayer life has to do with God being seen rightly by this watching world. That my neighbors in, in Pacific City or Cloverdale or, or Tillamook, this whole county, that they would see God for who he is. Not, not the silly, ah, just, it, it, it affects me so deeply when, when he's seen as man's invention for answering problems, and he's not seen as the one true living king. So they say, I'm glad you found religion, so that way your pillow's a little softer in this hard world. That is so far from the truth. No, the reality is he's not a little man-made pillow. He is the sovereign of the universe. And I want to see him hallowed. And I want to see his kingdom coming. Both coming in the present, just like that parable of the mustard seed, small, but then becomes this massive tree, just like the, the leaven put into the loaf. It takes a little bit of time, small, just dab a little bit in there, but then it permeates that loaf and it starts to grow and get all the way through. God's kingdom is moving. It is building. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, period. It's not going to happen. Leading up to the glorious return of Jesus Christ, And seeing his kingdom full where every knee bows, every tongue confesses, Jesus Christ is Lord, period. No competitors with Christ. There are no competitors with Christ. It's just us realizing there's no competitors with Christ. We go out into this world and people are like, oh man, so this is this religion, there's Christian, there's this, there's that, and they give all these options like a smorgasbord. And you go, now wait a minute though, there's only one that's true. 
We were just talking about this with a brother this week. <clears throat> we were talking about how people say Christ is a way. It's a means of salvation. Well, that's interesting because he said he's the only one. So if he is one, he's the only one. He's either a Lord liar or a lunatic, as I'm sure you've heard said before. And so, no, his kingdom is building, ultimately moving towards his end, which leads us to the next petition. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever said or asked, or have you ever had somebody ask you, what is God's will for my life? Heard that before? Said that before? Is this God's will? Is that God's will? I don't know what his will is for my life. I want to know. I remember when I was 17, 18 years old, sitting down with my youth pastor and another very well-trusted man in our church sitting down saying, I really, I really wonder if God's calling me to be a pastor and serve him in that capacity. My heart wants to. I want to do it, but I don't know what God's will is. Help me. And they gave me great advice that left me not knowing at all what I was supposed to do. <clears throat> Just the same advice I would give to anybody today, as I walked away going, that doesn't tell me the truth, which, side note, which was great advice because if they would have just simply said, well, of course you're supposed to be a pastor, that'd be wrong. That's not what they said. They gave me some things to consider, some tenets that were a part of a call to ministry and a great blessing to this day. The will of God is a doctrine, a truth, a reality that is sought out by eight-year-olds and 88-year-olds throughout this life as believers. What's God's will for my life? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? What should I do for a job? Where should I work? Should I buy this car or buy that car? Should it be this house or that house? I want to know what is God's will for my life. That's asked all the time. Well, beloved, it's not that easy. I know that there's some in Christendom that try to make it sound that easy, listen to his voice, and then when you hear it, go do that. I hear that from many people in my life, and I just say, well, I'm 36 years in, I've never heard the voice, so now what? The will of God, the burning question posed by Christians, what is God's will for my life? We must come to Scripture, and when we come to Scripture on the topic of the will of God... We come away with two definitions, in my opinion, of the will of God. That's why it's tricky when somebody says, so what's the will of God? Well, <laughs> uh, and that's not my political answer. It's just my answer is, um, that's a good question. Let me answer your question with another question, you know. God's will in two ways, his revealed will and his unrevealed will, or his decretive will and his perceptive will, his will that has been decreed, and his perceptive will where he's given his precepts, his commands. And so what I want to look at with you this morning, I want to do a little bit of theology together and look at this concept of the unrevealed will of God. What is the unrevealed, or I'm sorry, rather the revealed will of God and then the unrevealed will of God. What is the revealed will of God? The revealed will of God is where God has made known what his will is to his people. Now in the Old Testament scriptures, you see this in a few different things. When he comes to Moses and says, Moses, Moses, I want you to go do that, that's God's special revelation to Moses in that moment for what he wants Moses to do. 
But also in the writing of Scripture, we have God making his will known. When the psalmist or the, the prophet rather comes and says, thus saith the Lord, people aren't saying, I wonder what the Lord said. Well, listen, he'll tell you what he said. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, where God reveals his will. This is the revealed will of God. God has made clear what he wants from man. The truth that man must believe on Christ in order to be saved is within his revealed will. God says, you want to know what it's like? Here's what it's like. I'm telling you who I am, and I'm telling you who you are, and I'm telling you what I'm calling you to. Now, guys, here's the thing. This is This is one of the biggest battles for anybody who's been in the church for a long time, is that when we hear that kind of stuff, there's a callus on our heart potentially, and there's an over-familiarity, and it sweeps right by without bothering us or touching us in any way, shape, or form. But can I remind you of something afresh? By God's grace, he will bring this to you afresh. The living God has decided to let himself be known. Nobody forced him to do that. I didn't tell him to do that. Nobody tells God what to do. In his sovereignty, God said, I will let myself be known. I'll reveal my character. I'll show you that I'm all-powerful. I'll show you that I'm almighty. I will let you know that I love you. I will let myself be known to my creation. But not to just do it in the revelation of creation, meaning as we look at the beauty and the order and the majesty, do we come away going, okay, I think I know what God is like. No, then he goes another step and he says, actually, I'm going to reveal myself person to person. In the Old Testament scriptures, we see that. And then we see the revelation of written scripture on our laps right now. If somebody asks the question, what's God's will? Boom, there it is. You want to know what the will of God is? Open the book. And you have the revelation of the Almighty God. Now, the tricky part is sometimes we read it and it tells us bad stuff about us. I'm a sinner, lost in sin, condemned by his perfect righteous standard, and in need of his holy, perfect salvation in Jesus Christ. God has made himself known and that which he calls man to do and to be. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky theologically. Is the revealed will of God's pretty clear, I think. I think we have somewhat of a grasp of that. We say, okay, I see, I see what God says man's like. I see what he says he's like. I see what he's called me to do. I see that. I understand. Then we come to the unrevealed will of God. And things get very interesting. I'm going to show you a few passages of Scripture I know you are familiar with. But nonetheless, uh, vital for this. So I want you to look at the ink in your book along with me. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.29. You probably all have this memorized, but there's something, something special, something important about actually seeing it in your own copy of the Word as we walk through this. Deuteronomy 29.29 says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Now, what's so interesting about us 
is our first natural inclination is, I want to see the secret stuff. If my parents were, if they brought out some sort of treat or something, my mom would say, well, these are the things that we're going to put out because company's coming or whatever. You know, here's the candy I'm going to put out. My first thought was, I wonder what candy she didn't put out. When somebody goes, I'm going to share something with you, and they share something with you, and then they say, um, but I'm not going to share this part of it with you. What's your mind? Where's your mind go? There's something so natural where we're like, what are the secret things? And that's what people are asking, by the way. When folks come and they say, what's God's will for my life? They're not saying, what does the Bible say I'm supposed to do in obedience to the Lord? They're saying, am I supposed to marry this person, not marry this person, buy this car, not buy this car? We're fascinated by the unrevealed will of the living God. Well, here's your verse to just calm you down at times. It calms me down. When the Lord himself says, the secret things are mine, the revealed things are yours, trust me. And that's, that's the hard part. Not theologically, Theologically, it's easy to trust him. But in practice, when God says, I'm not going to tell you, but I want you to trust me in this, that's where it gets hard. But nonetheless, the Lord has said the secret things belong to him, not to you. In the words of my dad, why? Because I said so. (laughs) The thing is, beloved, we have every reason to trust, to trust him with the secret things. It's just hard at times when we can't see behind that veil to know what he's up to. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. I'm going to read 2 and 3. It says, Why should the nation say, Where's their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And what's the next thing in that verse? It's a period, which is communicating, that's it, done. It doesn't say unless, it says period. God says, I'm in the heavens and I do all that I please, period. Romans 8, 28, I realize you can rattle it off really fast. I could too. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to its purpose. Now, really important piece to this, beloved, is that it does not say all things are good. Okay? The text doesn't say all things are good. It says God works all things together for good. Okay, so... Quick illustration, say I take a manual transmission and I take all the pieces to a manual transmission out of a car and I just lay it all out here in front of you, just completely uh, disassemble all the pieces. And I say, now, I need you to make a car go forward with that. What's needed? We need somebody with a mind, with a plan, with a design to put all the pieces to come together perfectly so that way when you move that shifter, that car works perfectly and moves forward. Does that mean this one piece by itself will move forward? No. It's a whole pile of pieces put together perfectly to accomplish a task. 
all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. Not all things are good. Why is that important? I'll show you in about 10 minutes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Remember, we're we're talking about his decretive will. This is his unrevealed will. Ephesians 1, verse 11 should be highlighted in your Bible. I would imagine it probably is. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Him who? Here's the description of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He works all things together for good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, and the secret things are his. So when somebody says, what is the will of God for my life? This is where (laughs) the rubber hits the road, is when the revealed will and the unrevealed will hit each other. I want to show you specifically where, um, or particularly where, Acts chapter 2, if you would, Acts chapter 2. And we're asking this question, how the revealed will of God and the unrevealed will of God collide at the cross. How the revealed will of God and the unrevealed will of God collide at the cross. Verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, did Jesus go to the cross because Judas sold him out? Good answer. Did Jesus go to the cross because the Pharisees were jealous of him? Did Jesus go to the cross because Pilate was a coward? Did Jesus go to the cross because the the big pile of people yelled out, crucify him and give us um, Barabbas? Why did Jesus go to the cross, according to this text? Because of the definite plan of the living God. So, ready? Let's let's play a game together. I'll ask a question, you'll be really quiet, and then um, we'll go from there. Was it the will of God for Jesus Christ to be crucified? Was it the will of the Pharisees for Jesus Christ to be crucified? Was it the will of Judas that Jesus should be sold for 30 pieces of silver? Now you're seeing where this decretive will and perceptive will is, because you ask the question, wasn't it sin what the Pharisees were doing? Yep. Wasn't it sin what Judas did? Yep. Wasn't it sin when they mocked him and beat him, even though it was a mock trial and nobody really even truly brought evidence against him? Yep, all sin. That's the text says, by lawless hands. 
And yet, Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart. Not my will, but your will be done. What's, your, what's his will, Jesus? What's the will of the Father? That this, cap, this cup would not pass from me, but that I would taste the wrath of the Father on the cross. God's will when Jesus went to the cross. I always thought it was interesting when the Passion movie came out. Um, I was a, during Bible college, and everybody had their differing opinion. Should we go see the movie? Should we not go see the movie? And they were debating it and arguing about it. And I thought it was, it was very interesting because when the movie was over, the question left in the minds of people was very simple. Why is he up there? Is he up there because the bad guys won? It's not what my Bible tells me. He's up there because the Father decreed it. Simultaneously, he's up there because of the evil intentions of those around him. The decretive will, in other words, his his decree of what's going to happen, but also they were breaking the will of God in their evil passion against Jesus. Beloved, if you don't have room for both in your theology, I just encourage you to go back to the text of Scripture and ask some very serious questions. And here's the part, guys. This is the rub of this whole thing. Nothing has brought deeper more profound comfort to not only my heart, but to many of the saints, the great saints in the history of the church, in the midst of their suffering, than the fact that God is sovereignly at work, even in the midst of our deepest pain. And it's not something you say glibly, whether that, and that is offensive, that hurts somebody's heart when they're in pain. But beloved, this is the tonic, this is the, the balm for the greatest wounds of this life, is to say, really, God's still in charge. And I, but guys, I know, I, I've been there in the presence of people where it was the most devastating day of their life, and they've been the ones who've told me, man, if God wasn't in charge, I have nothing that I could hold to in the midst of this. So this is not mere heady playing around stuff. This is the blanket that wraps around you in your trauma. That the living God is in sovereign control, and I can trust him completely in the midst of this. The unrevealed will of God and the revealed will of God colliding. The Romans went against God's revealed will in the murder of Jesus, yet accomplished his unrevealed will in the murder of Jesus. Now, there's the cross, okay, up there. Let me, let me bring it down to more of a dopey story, okay? The difference could be stated like this. When Dan was 19 years old, I knew that God's will was for me to marry a godly Christian woman, but I could not find the name Amber anywhere in my Bible. I looked. God had never given clear, or God had given clear characteristics of what type of woman I should marry, but he never directly told me it was Amber. Now, my dad did. (laughs) I had to trust him, pray, and seek counsel from godly people around me about whether or not I should marry this individual. There was freedom in reference to who, but there was no freedom in reference to certain characteristics that must be a part of this person. 
If I will become one flesh with them for the rest of my life, how serious is this? So I obeyed God's revealed will and came to find out that his unrevealed will was Amber Hotram. And I married her. More importantly, she married me. (laughs) And then we have our kids, and I look behind me and I say, you know what? I think God wanted me to marry Amber. But if somebody came to me at 19, the day before, well, 20, I got married when I was 20, and they, the day before I got married, they said, so, is God wants you to marry Amber? My answer, I think so. But it still is unrevealed will. But I have sought to obey and walk in obedience to his revealed will and wait for him and trust him for his unrevealed will. The interesting part is all the work he does in the waiting. Let me say a side note here real quick, because maybe not necessary for this group, but nonetheless, I'll throw it out there because I think it's still important. Um, We need to be very careful with the God told me language. That's super popular when people say you just need to be quiet, pray, and then wait for a still small voice or something of that nature. I think that there is time where silence before the Lord, prayer before the Lord is a positive thing. I'm not saying anything against that. Of course not. But I have heard some of the strangest things when people said, I think God told me to do this. And then they tell me what God told them to do, and it has nothing to do with his revealed will. Not only that, I've always found it so fascinating that folks who are so looking at the secret will have nothing to do with the revealed will. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying, at some point, somebody has to ask the question, have you read the Word? Have you seen what the Word has to say? Because if, if my mindset goes to, what does God think about this? I don't, I don't stop and say, God, what do you think about this? Because I believe with all my heart He's given revelation. He's revealed himself in the word of God, and so I go to the word and see what he has said. So godly counsel, the reading of the word and prayer, they aren't, they aren't like, you're not picking at a smorgasbord. They are all needed in the decision-making of this life. All right, all that to be said. In this text, what's Jesus telling us to pray for? Within this petition, in this prayer, he's asking for God's revealed will to be obeyed and followed on this earth as it is in heaven. Just like the kingdom, it will be perfectly done in the future, but is progressively being done on earth today. Prayer for the world at large to obey God's will, but really... The person I'm most concerned about walking in obedience to the God's revealed will is Dan. That's the guy I'm up against every day. That I want my life to be more in line with the will of God. And so you ask the question, how can I find the will of God for my life? I would encourage you to read Genesis to Revelation. Leather to leather. Beloved, we should be very, very careful. We should not have ears for anyone that says, I think I know the will of God with a closed Bible. And when somebody asks you, what's God's will for my life, and they are not seeking the word of God, they're asking the wrong person in that moment. Asking for counsel is great, but with a closed Bible, what are we doing? 
I want to know the will of God, and I've got 66 books of revelation from the living God, but I've shut my ears to that. And no, God's answers are not always easy. They're not always comfortable. It doesn't mean you get this big cushy pad in this life. But nonetheless, there's truth in lies. It's, It's laid out before us. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 3 basically is telling us the will of God is your sanctification. You becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. This is the will we must concern ourselves with as well as pray for in the lives of those around us. And the reason that's, that's hard, you guys, is because we are consistently There's always this forever corner we aren't allowed to see around, right? What day will Dan Mason die? Anybody? Anybody? No idea. Me either. So here's this corner, and I'm going, okay, so Lord, what about this? When's this going to happen? What day am I going to, what day are you taking me out of this world? What day is my wife going to pass? Am I going to be told I got cancer tomorrow? What's happening around the corner? Tell me, Lord, what's happening around the corner? And here's the sovereign of the universe saying, that's none of your business. Now, is he saying that's none of your business because he doesn't want me to know because there's some bad thing around the corner? I don't think so. Because the one who's saying that's none of your business is the one who loves me more than I can even fathom. So God in his grace says, the secret things are mine, but the revealed is for you. So walk in obedience to the revealed And here's where the hit comes. Trust me with the unrevealed. Matthew Henry said, to please God in everything we do and to not be displeased at anything God does. To please God in everything we do and to not be displeased at anything God does. That is hard. That's really hard. I know that that sounds very Christian-y and it should put us all at ease. And to some level, it truly, truly does. But that is really hard in a fallen world to please God in everything we do and to be pleased at everything he does. But it's what I see in my Bible. The will of God, if you this morning are here and... You truly, in your heart, right now, this moment, you are saying, I don't even know if I really know this Christ. I can tell you from the Word of God, His will for you is for you to lay your life down at His feet. Not a religious game, but declare Him as King. You're in charge now. Dan's not in charge, Lord. You're in charge. I want to follow you. You tell me what to do. And God says, I have. (laughs) I have. And before we come to the communion, I would encourage you, if you get, uh, just take the opportunity to read through the Gospels with the intent of looking for obedience to the will of the Father by the Son. It's, it's remarkable how many times Jesus makes reference to he's here for the obedience to the will of the Father. 
He is the glorious, bright, shiny example of what it is to walk in obedience to the will of God. And then ultimately to lay his life down on the cross for our sin. Let me pray. Father, the unknown is is so hard at times. And Lord, if we're honest, it's hard because we really don't trust you. We have every reason to trust you from history, from your word, from our own practice in life. We have every reason to trust you. Father, at times we recognize we don't. So, dear God, I I petition you for your will to be done in our lives, in my life, Lord God, to walk in obedience to what I see clearly from your word. That's not always easy either, Lord, to know what you've called us to do from your word. But I am so thankful to you, Lord God, that there are people in this place who want to know what is clear from your scripture, what you're calling us to do, Lord, and to walk in obedience to that. I pray, Father, that as we come to your table, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, we would not take this in a manner of flippancy or in a manner of we're just doing it to do it. But Father, as we consider the ultimate plan of the Trinity in the death of Jesus Christ on that cross as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sin, dear God, this is a time of remembrance, a needed time for us. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us as we come to your table. For the glory of Christ, amen.